Good morning, church. Thank you, Wayne, for everything. That was beautiful, man. I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 2, the entire chapter. So I would recommend you open and read it because otherwise you will not understand what's, what's being read. <laughs> so Isaiah chapter 2, the entire chapter. I'll give you guys a little time. God's word says, This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established, and the highest of the mountains it will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples, many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, so that we may, all, we, we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations, and he will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Come, descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people. The descendants of Jacob, they are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. They, their land is full of silver and gold. There is, no, there is no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There is no end to their chariots. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low, and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. Go into the rocks, hiding the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and the human pride brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted that day. The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan, for all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. People will flee to caves and rocks and the holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the moles and bats their idols of silver and gold, which they have made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. Stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in steam? Amen.
Good morning. Uh, If you will, turn in your Bibles with me to Jonah. The sermon this morning will be a part of the first sermon in a four-sermon series series that I tend to preach with any opportunities I get over the next little bit. So if I'm up here preaching, it'll be over the book of Jonah. I don't know why we're getting some Wayne sabotaging me. God wants me to do it without a pulpit. Okay. So, a little background on Jonah. Jonah is one of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. When we speak of minor and major prophets, it has nothing to do with the importance or the impact of their words, typically only to the length of the book. If you look with me at the, if you take a quick look at the Old Testament, at the major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Daniel, you'll notice that those books are much longer than the eight other books of the prophets. This does not have anything to do with their importance or the impact of their words on their, on us. Um, I believe that the smaller books are just as important as the large I'd read through the entire book of Jonah, all three pages of it, several times before I decided to preach on this, and um, I thought I knew the whole story, as I'm sure all of y'all do too. God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against their sin. He didn't want to, so he ran away to Tarshish. God brought a great storm, and to save themselves, the sailors threw Jonah in the sea. Jonah was swallowed by a great fish, and then three days later spat out on the beach of Assyria. He then changed his outlook and went and did what God wanted him to do. The people of Nineveh repented and were saved. End of the story, right? Pretty simple. This would lead us to believe that there isn't a lot of spiritual meat and potatoes in this short book. More of a quick lesson about obeying God, or else we could be eaten by a great fish. This could not be further from the truth, as I learned in studying this book for several, several months now. One of the reasons I've fallen in love with expository preaching like Justin brought to us is that there's so much to learn from every single verse in the Bible, really every word. I don't know if y'all know this, there's 66 separate books in the Bible. If we believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, the divinely inspired word of God, It only makes sense that there's importance even in the shortest of its books, or else why would it be in there? This first installment of the Jonah series will cover Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16. So if you haven't already, if you'll turn with me there to Jonah chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, Go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought, will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us his innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity for me to, to bring your word to our congregation, Father. Help me to do it in a great way and not stumble too much as I deliver this sermon. Give me the strength and the courage to deliver the message that you wrote through me to the people so that they may find encouragement in themselves, Father. Be with all of us today. Continue to watch over us as you always do. And of course, in all things, let your will be done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's funny, this morning I sat with Justin and uh, had him go over with me the pronunciation of some of the Jewish words in here. I didn't think I'd stumble over the English words as much. Okay. As some of you may notice, I didn't include cha- uh, verse 17 in this first chapter. Talking with Justin and doing my own research on this book, I decided that verse 17 really fits more with chapter 2. So that's where I'll start my second sermon on this series. One thing we have to remember is that when these books were written, they didn't have verses and chapters. They were just written out. The aspect, these aspects of the Bible were later added to make it easier for us to reference. This was only done less than a thousand years ago. So for the first couple thousand years this book was around, there was no chapters and verses. That being said, let us, get to know, let us start by getting to know who Jonah was. Jonah the prophet, son of Amittai was a contemporary of Elisha. Look with me in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. 
This starts just after the death of the prophet Elisha during the reign of Jeroboam II. 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25 says, He restored the border of Israel from Lebo-Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. This single verse is the only mention of Jonah outside of his book in the Old Testament, but it tells us many things about him. First, that he was a prophet coming after Elijah, and as I said earlier, a contemporary of Elisha, who was the protege of Elijah. He had prophesied much to Israel before the narrative that is contained in his book. He had been a prophet for many years, preaching in um, synagogues and temples in Israel. It also tells us another interesting fact, that Jonah was from Gath-Hefer, which was part of Galilee, is close to five miles to Nazareth. According to Alistair Begg, Jonah is the only known prophet to come from Galilee, the home of our Savior Christ. The book of Jonah is also interesting, and that is the only book of the prophets that is a narrative in form. If you notice, the other books of the prophets focus on what they prophesied. The majority of Jonah's prophecies are not written down in the Bible, which leads me to believe that this week in the life of Jonah was so monumental that it took precedence over his time in Israel prophesizing. The city that God tells Jonah to call out, Nineveh, is one of the greatest cities in Assyria. It later becomes a capital of Assyria, but at this time it was just a great city. It was also an enemy of Israel. Nineveh was actually founded by a great-grandson of Noah. His name was Nimrod, son of Cush, son of Ham, who was Noah's son. According to Genesis 10, 8 through 10, Nimrod was the first person on the earth to be a mighty man. He was also a mighty hunter before the Lord. Nimrod also began Babylon, another of Israel's enemies. It is very interesting to me, as I study this, that hundreds of years before the birth of even Abraham, the Lord was already setting up the bringers of trials and tribulations for his people. Just to give y'all an idea of how evil Nineveh was, turn with me to the book of Nahum, which is after the book of Jonah. Nahum, chapter 3, starting in verse 1, it says... Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and rumble of the wheel, galloping horse and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end, they stumble over the bodies. This is quite a dark scene. Imagine how Jonah felt when being told by God to go there and preach out against it. Coincidentally, this scene of Nineveh is about a hundred years after Nineveh repents. So even though it doesn't talk about it, I'm assuming that Nineveh was even worse when Jonah was asked to go there than it is in the scripture. 
As we work through the first chapter of Jonah today, I want to point out five applications that are very relatable to us in the world of our time. The first application can be found in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1 of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 say, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. The first verse gives us a clear indication that God has spoken directly to Jonah, telling him, first of all, to arise. He didn't tell Jonah to go when he got a chance or when it was convenient for him. He commanded him to get up right now, drop what he was doing, and go to Nineveh. This is what God expects of Jonah and also what he expects of us. We are to arise and spread his word, not on our time, but right now. This is reflected in Matthew twenty-eight nineteen by Jesus in his great commission. If you will look with me in the book of Matthew, chapter 28, in verse 19, Jesus commands us to go. Matthew, chapter 28, verse 19 states, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Just as God commands Jonah to arise, Jesus commands us as Christians to go. Why does God want Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh? Because their evil has come up before him. God tells Jonah to call out the people of Nineveh for their evil ways. God could have simply destroyed the city as he did Sodom and Gomorrah and many others in the Old Testament. But in his infinite mercy and compassion, he instead commands one of his prophets to risk life and limb to go and warn them of their coming destruction and judgment. These are Assyrians, remind you, killers and oppressors of the Israelites. And yet God still offers them grace. What a wonderful father we have. As we continue on to the second point of application this morning, the book of Jonah, Jonah continues with Jonah's response to God the Father. In verse 3 it reads, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go within to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah knew what the Lord wanted him to do. Instead, he ran in the opposite direction. How often do all of us do that? You might be sitting there thinking, if God spoke to me directly, I would do exactly what he said for sure. But would you? Do you every day? God speaks to us every day in many ways. First and foremost, through Scripture. Looking back on the Great Commission, Jesus commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. While that brings to mind international mission trips like us going to Honduras, what about the nation that we live in? Jonah had preached for years in Israel before God told him to go to Nineveh. According to a great book called Christ-Centered Exposition, when we refuse to tell others in our everyday life about the coming judgment and our salvation in Christ, we are rebelling against God himself. The book reads, when we are slow to tell people about Jesus, or don't tell people at all, we are doing the very thing Jonah did. 
We are rebelling against a great commission. If we keep doing that unchecked, we could soon find ourselves moving away from the presence of the Lord. For to reject any one command of the Lord, no matter how tough the application of this command seems to be, it is to reject God's will and thus to reject the Lord himself. Scary stuff, huh? And we're not even asked to go to Nineveh. I don't think that we realize how often we do this in our life every single day. The book continues, Every time I stop at my local convenience store and speak casually to the same store clerk that I've seen for years, but do not mention Jesus, all the times I take my car to the same mechanic and never even mention to him the power of Christ to save, and every time I see the same dry cleaners worker and never once share the gospel, I am going down a path toward rejecting God. I never move so slowly, hesitantly, or cautiously when I want the Lord to heal a pain in my body, have mercy on my children, or get me out of a jam. At those times, my attitude towards the command of the Lord is, Father, just speak the word, Lord, and I will obey. Anything you want me to do, I'll do it. Just get me out of this jam, right? It is the same speak the word response we should have toward telling the lost about Christ. Or our rebellion could grow into rejection. I think that we take small rebellions for granted. We rationalize our refusals to tell others about Christ by saying that we go on a mission trip every year. Or that we help on Wednesday nights. We serve on committees. And we regularly tithe. All of these things are important but nothing compared to evangelism. In a sermon on Luke 5.12 by Alistair Begg I listened to recently, he made a great illustration of this. I'm not going to be able to do it in his Scottish accent, but I'll, I'll give it my best. He said that until we understand the purpose of Christ, we will be tempted to fulfill all other kinds of purposes in our lives, and we will be tempted to take the direction of this church down all kinds of dead-end streets. There is one, only ultimately one purpose, to see men and women brought from darkness into the marvelous light. Everything else in the church, in comparison to evangelism, is like moving the furniture around in your house while the house is on fire. The fire alarm goes off, smoke is coming out of one of the bedroom windows, and your wife is saying, you know what, I think the couch, if you turn it just at this angle here, is fantastic. Honey, the house is on fire. I understand that. I'll be there in a moment, right? I think this relates to our church in many ways. We get so caught up in membership and our roles in the church that we lose sight of what we are truly here for. We see Brother Justin's struggles to make our church truly biblical and think that he's trying to keep people out when that is the opposite of what he is doing and what all of us want. His goal is to create a solid body of members, just like any other structure, it must start with a solid foundation. And in this process, force us to evangelize to our family members by asking them if they intend to come back to church or members of a different church. You see, the point of all this is just to start the conversation. I know that a lot of people, myself very much included, hesitate to bring up salvation to others because we feel like we don't know enough about it. 
Sometimes because we don't want to know their answer or that they don't believe in it. If we will just step out in faith and bring up the topic, God will take over from there and give us the words to save his children. I have seen this happen time and time again in my own life where I would be talking to somebody and at first I wouldn't even want to talk about it. And then once I get the conversation going, I would find scripture in my heart to tell them. I would go on and on and it's just this amazing thing that happens where you, if you don't take the initial step to break the ice, you'll never understand. Third this morning, we must remember it is impossible to escape the presence of the Lord. Getting back to the book of Jonah and continuing in verses 4 through 6, we are shown a vivid example of how God responds to Jonah's disobedience. Starting in verse 4, it reads, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will save, give us a thought that we may not perish. That last verse always makes me think of Elisa, our youngest daughter. The last time we went camping as a family, she was only three, which she's eight now, so that was half a decade ago. Scotty was barely six months old. While we were sleeping, a terrific storm came upon us, and I woke up to the wind snapping one of the main tents, tent poles like a twig. While holding one side of the tent up, and amidst the screaming of the baby and a five-year-old Layla, I frantically tried to discuss with my wife what we should do. This is a true story. All of a sudden, the second main pole of our tent snapped from the force of the wind, and I was holding the entire tent off of us. When the, with the wind beating the tent to death, a six-month-old baby boy screaming at the top of his lungs, and Lexi and Layla freaking out, we had failed to notice little Elisa sleeping through the whole ordeal. Lexi literally had to wake her up to get her out of the tent. I'm not sure how much worse that storm that God threw at these sailors was, but I can imagine the surprise of the captain upon finding Jonah calmly sleeping through it. God sent the tempest upon that ship with several agendas. First and foremost, to remind his servant that no matter where he goes, it is impossible to hide from the creator of the universe. How could Jonah really expect to escape the presence of the Lord? People frequently bring up the question of salvation for murderers. How can someone who has killed others ever find grace? Just because they ask Jesus into their lives, none of their grievous sins matter? The truth is that God can see into our hearts. He knows our deepest feelings and desires. No matter how much someone has sinned in their life, if they are truly reborn in Christ, those sins are forgiven. Of course, hopefully that doesn't apply to anyone here, but the reverse definitely applies to some of us. No matter how much we are involved with the church, how much we give, 
how much we volunteer, God can see in our hearts and knows our deepest, darkest secrets. God knows that if we are, if we are truly saved, and nothing, absolutely nothing we can do except love him can change that. Even Jesus said that if we love his Father and love one another, everything else will fall in place. Look with me in the New Testament in the book of Matthew, chapter 22, starting in verse 36. Turn with me there. Matthew 22, starting in verse 30, 36, reads, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law of the prophets. Christ makes it very clear. We are to love the Lord and love each other as we love ourselves. Would anyone here convict themselves to eternity in hell? I want everyone to think about that as we dive back into the book of Jonah for the fourth application of this chapter. That God is always in control. Verses 7 through 9 read, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell, on, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This section shows us that God is in complete control of the entire situation. Even though he knows how the story will play out, he still gives Jonah every opportunity to repent and even affects the outcome of the lots to place peer pressure on Jonah by singling him out amongst the sailors. Going back to the Christ-centered exposition book, it reads, The mariners may have been calling on false gods. Now they are going to turn toward Jonah because a lot is going to fall on him. As best we can understand historically, casting lots consisted of tossing rocks of multiple colors. If a certain color fell towards somebody, or if all the colors but one fell towards everybody else, they would say, aha, that's the person whom the gods or God has picked for what we're asking. This is how one knows God is in absolute control of the situation. The writer previously said God hurled the sea, the storm on the sea. The end of the episode will show God appointed a fish to get Jonah. When they throw their little rocks, the rocks could turn and fall on anybody on the ship. Yet they go to the one who is sleeping below deck. This is not chance. It is the Lord manifesting his will and showing his sovereign rule over all things. Over Jonah's life, the sailors' lives, the storm, the sea, the ship the lots, and everything else. How did Jonah respond to God? How should he have responded? 
He was a prophet of the Lord. Being so, he knew that he could simply repent and do what God had commanded to stop the storm. But let us see what he decided to do. Continuing in verses 10 through 12, we read, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. You notice how during the sermon, God gets my lingo right. Jonah was so against the Lord's command that he would rather have rather thrown them, him into the sea and die than to repent and go to Nineveh. You may be thinking the same thing. A death at sea might be better than facing people so evil with a message of judgment. But as Amber related to this morning in the children's sermon, Jonah didn't fear the Ninevites. He feared their repentance. What had caused Jonah to flee from the presence of the Lord in the beginning and what to him now was worse, worse than his death was the possibility that the people of Nineveh might turn from their evil ways and repent. Sounds silly, doesn't it? But put your foot in his sandal for a second. Can any of us say that we would love to have the chance to preach about impending judgment to members of ISIS? in hopes that they would repent and become members of our church. And before you say to yourself, I would love to do that, know that I'm talking about members of a terrorist group that had murdered thousands of people that you know. As it reads in Genesis 10, hosts of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. Do we not wish bitter judgment on them when we hear about their atrocities in the news? Yet as evil as the people of Nineveh were, they are God's creations. And if he believes that they deserve the chance to repent, who is Jonah to say no? Who are we to tell God that we know better than he does who deserves to go to heaven? One of my favorite quotes from Alistair Begg's sermon on this book is, Can one man's no circumvent the eternal, the eternal plan of God? Jesus commands us to go and spread the gospel to the nations, not to spread the gospel to the people we think deserve to hear it. The final section of this chapter shows us how miraculous the power of God is. Starting in verse 13 and going through verse 16, it reads, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Remember that these were pagan sailors with a prophet of the Lord running from the Lord's presence on board with them. Of all the ways God could have dealt with Jonah, in his infinite wisdom, he set an example for us by using Jonah's extreme disobedience 
to extend grace to them, the pagan sailors. Notice in verse 13, even though Jonah told them to throw him overboard, they had already feared the Lord so much that they tried to roll back to dry land instead. Had they not feared the Lord, they would have just tossed him overboard and seen what happened. I wonder what Jonah was telling them. Listen, you guys, I've seen what my Lord can do. You won't be able to make it back to dry land if you don't want you to. Jonah knew that all he had to do was repent. Tell God that he would go to Nineveh as soon as they got back to Joppa, and he would have allowed them safe travel. But his hatred for the Ninevites was so deep that even at the risk of his life and all of the sailors' lives, he refused to do so. It doesn't say how large of a ship this was, but I assume it was a fairly large ship. So we're talking about, you know, 10, 20, 30 people that were going to die also if the ship broke up. Uh, even worse than that, he selfishly allowed them to continue the rest of their lives that he might live without having to repent. There is no mention of Jonah urging them to throw him overboard. He told them once and left them to their struggles. Jonah was a coward. Even in his unrepentant sin, he could have simply jumped overboard himself. Yet he made the sailors do it for him. Finally, the sailors conceded to God that they can't win. But before throwing Jonah into the sea, they asked God for forgiveness. Then they sacrificed Jonah, and God immediately quelled the sea. The change was so sudden that the sailors were instantly converted to God-fearing men. It's amazing how God can use us to change the lives of others even when we are going completely against what he has commanded us to do. In conclusion, first off, I want to say that I love all of y'all. There are a ton of ways the book of Jonah relates to us in our lives as Christians. I hope that I've related the applications of each part well this morning. But for the ways we can put them into action, I want to turn back to the much more educated authors of the Christ-centered exposition. They give us four ways to apply this chapter to our lives. I found all four of them very helpful for my life also. The first is to go on the offensive on Monday morning. When we arrive at work on Monday morning and someone asks us, how was your weekend? Take the opportunity to start a gospel conversation. Remember, like I said earlier, if we will just step out in faith and break the ice, God will give us the words to say. You don't have to know the whole Bible to share the good news of salvation through Christ. All you need is the courage to start the conversation. A great way to do this is to say something along the lines of, I heard a great sermon, and then follow with a short summary of what you learned on Sunday morning. The second way to apply this chapter to our lives is to be clear on the gospel and its significance. While it is good to break the ice about the gospel in a casual way, once the conversation is turned in that direction, we have to be serious and firm in our standing of it. Jonah knew that God's message to the Ninevites could save them and that his repentance could save the sailors. But out of sheer hate for his enemies, he refused to deliver. We also know the truth about Jesus' sacrifice for us and how none can receive grace without knowing him. Don't let others die in their sins because you are afraid to tell them the truth and stand firmly upon your beliefs. 
The third way to apply this message to your life is to pray for opportunities to share the gospel clearly, courageously, and humbly. Prayer is second only to evangelism in the Christian life. It is the gas that fuels our spiritual engine. We must pray daily that we may recognize our opportunities to do God's work, spreading His words to the lost. If you feel like you already pray enough, I can tell you, you probably don't. I felt the same way until Justin gave me a great another book on prayer. And uh, some of the pastors in that book prayed for five, six, seven hours a day. So I'm working my way up to that. But The fourth and final way to apply this message to our lives is to actively and regularly invite people, to, to our, people in our spheres of influence to Sunday morning worship services. Most of all, and I'm telling this to myself as much as anyone, we should be encouraging our family members to attend. Bringing unbelievers to worship with us is one possible means of introducing them to the good news of salvation through Christ. Use any means necessary, including social media, email, text messages, or even postcards. Whatever it takes to offer them an opportunity to be a part of our worship service. But the important thing is, don't let that become a substitute for talking with them during the week about the gospel. Simply inviting someone to church isn't going to do any good unless you plant a seed in their minds that makes them want to learn more about Jesus and his message, encouraging them to come to learn more while they're here on Sunday. In closing, remember that Christ commanded us to spread the word. There is a judgment coming. And we must be warning the lost and bringing them to the love of Jesus. Don't foster hate in your heart like Jonah did, rebelling against God and condemning the people around you to burn for eternity. This is our God-given mission each and every day. Thank you for letting me preach to you all. And I look forward to getting an opportunity to finish the book of Jonah. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for this day and every day, Father. Thank you for allowing us to wake up this morning, for giving us this opportunity to come and to learn to tell others about you and how we can be a light in this dark world, Father. We know that a judgment's coming. We know that as Christians, it's our job to tell others about the coming judgment and how they can find repentance, Father. Please give us the courage to not exclude those that don't look like us or don't act like us. Just as Jesus sat with tax collectors and prostitutes, let us also spread the gospel to those that are dirty and unaccepting. Let us invite them to our church, Father, even if we don't want to. Help us to see that the lost are the ones that need your love, Father. You didn't come to save the righteous. Not that any of us are righteous, but let us all be courageous, Father, and give us all the bravery to preach your word and to spread your word to the others. Thank, us for ev thank you for everything you give for us. And like I said earlier, in all things, let your will be done. In Jesus' wonderful and beautiful name I pray this. Amen.